Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. It is, of course, one of the greatest pleasures of being a pediatrician is working with families and watching children thrive. It is my very great pleasure to bring Mary Barkholtz to the podcast today. Mary is a mother of two young men on the autism spectrum and also works as a special education teacher at a local intermediate school district. Her passion is to give support and guidance to families and their children with special needs. Mary is a 2011 graduate from the Robert B. Miller College in Battle Creek with a degree in elementary education and learning disabilities, summa cum laude. Her community involvement includes many years volunteering with Special Olympics of Kalamazoo County, seven years volunteering with the Special Education Parent Advisory Committee of Kalamazoo County, and many years mentoring parents of children with special needs through various organizations. Each of those experiences has allowed her the opportunity to achieve her passion of serving others, to aid in students reaching farther than they thought they could, as well as letting them know that they are not alone in their pursuit for a better life. Please join me in welcoming Mary Barkholtz. Hey, Mary, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Leah. I'm great. Good. I am so grateful. I have had one other parent do a recording, and so I am really delighted to have you, and I thank you for your time. Well, thanks. I I appreciate being able to share with others our experiences. Well, I want to start out with how you and I met. So um, we met in my office, and I don't even remember the age that your boys were when we first got to know each other, but maybe you can talk a little bit about kind of your experience with, you know, when you first noticed maybe there was something different about your boys and how you brought it to our attention. Sure. My youngest was diagnosed first. And we knew something was going on probably um, at a year, year and a half. I was pushing, 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 saying, I think he, he just cries too much. He doesn't snuggle like my first did, those types of things. And it was a neighbor who was a kindergarten teacher who said, I need you to call the county and get him tested because I, I think something's going on. And so she was the one that really knew, but wouldn't say it. Bless her heart. And that kind of kept rolling there. So, you know, the county came in and did their assessment, but he was two at the time, two, two and a half years old. He started school by the time he was three. My oldest, his first grade teacher was the one that pointed out to me that she thought he was on the spectrum. And I was highly offended because he was not like my youngest. So we waited on that one a little bit. Um, And as My oldest got um, close to fourth and fifth grade. We could see that there was definitely a lot more needs than just um, a reading deficit and language deficit. So um, what was different? What do you think that the teacher was picking up on? I'm not positive. I discounted her so much. I don't even think I really, really heard her. Um, I discounted her because she was a first year teacher. She was so young. She doesn't have her own kids. He had anxiety that 
she could probably see at that point that I didn't see. And as he got to fourth and fifth grade, it was very, very obvious that there was a lot going on inside of him that he just didn't know what to do with. But they have always been very, very different, the two of them. And when did you first bring up something to a pediatrician? So um, with my youngest, once we had the county do their diagnosis, which is an educational diagnosis, then I brought it up to the pediatrician. The pediatrician said, you know, this isn't something that I see a lot of, but I want to send you to the U of M to have him tested. We followed up with that um, and had the medical diagnosis then as well. I didn't understand at the time why we had to have the two different ones. That makes a little bit more sense now, years and years and years later. And what about when you said something to your pediatrician about your oldest that when you were ready? When, when did you start Mm -hmm. kind of saying, Hey, I'm, you know, I I don't know. I'm wondering. So that was when, um, we came to see you and we came to the behavioral center and that's where we met you going to see his name escapes me now. (gasps) Dr. Sloan, Dr. Sloan. Yes. Dr. Mark Sloan was the name that was the buzz with all the parents and you were working with him and we were already part of your pediatric, but we weren't seeing you. So that's when oh, boy, we I forgot. I forgot that. That's yeah. right. Okay. Oh, I remember meeting you for sure. <laughs> well, it, it was a bright light because it felt like the first time you took time where others were very, um, they felt limited with their time and their energy for this topic. You wanted to know more and you asked more questions and you listened. So it's a bit different. I appreciate that so much. Um, You know, I think part of it is because I'm kind of nosy and two, I really love behavioral health. I mean, it's just, it, it fascinates me. And I had a really great mentor and actually Dr. Sloan was a guest on the podcast when I first started. And yeah, I mean, I learned so much from him. And so, and it's been a joy working with you and your kids. I mean, it's been really fun. And you and I've stayed in touch now that they're in their 20s. You said something really interesting about the diagnosis piece and you're a special education teacher. And I'm wondering if you can explain well, two things. One, how do you pick special education? Were you already in that when your kids were diagnosed? And two, this disconnect between medical diagnosis and school diagnosis, because it took me forever. I learned it from a special ed teacher too. Mm -hmm. So no, I was not a special ed teacher when my children were diagnosed. Um, It came about when I divorced and uh, we closed our company and I needed to find what I wanted to do with my life. And after a lot of heartfelt searching, I came up with education. Education really felt like that's where I belonged. And it wasn't until I was um, trying to get a, a grant and I was writing a, a grant and out came the fact that I wanted to be a special ed teacher. And my poor mother, she said, oh, you don't want to do that. 24-7 is not good <laughs> having your kids and then going in and working with them. But it, it felt right. And it always has felt right. Um, I felt like I was so blessed with the educational system that my children were given. I wanted to be a part of that too and be be that answer for so many families. And then I started to learn 
the differences between an educational diagnosis and a medical diagnosis. A medical diagnosis can help you to get um, services within your community. An educational diagnosis is its own piece, and they only use that information for the educational setting. Therefore, it has to impact that diagnosis of autism has to impact that student in their educational setting. And therefore, the IEP is written to help support that student within the educational setting as it pertains to their autism. Yeah, that was so a really... Are- that was really a hard one for me because I kept saying, like I would call or talk to a teacher and I'd be like, this kid clearly has autism and they need services. So why aren't you doing that? I mean, what else? It was like, they weren't taking my word for it. Like my diagnosis didn't matter. And then I started working with a special education teacher and she explained this to me because special education might not be that helpful to all kids with autism. Is that right? Sure. So it becomes more restrictive of an environment for kids that might not need it. They might need other pieces. And that's why there's another avenue to go that is not special education, but it's allowing that medical diagnosis to come into the school. And it's called a 504. A 504 plan um, will take the autism diagnosis and then take the specific areas that student might need. They might need help with the organization. That doesn't make them a special education student. It just means they are a student with a medical diagnosis and they need help with organization. And you build documents that will help that child to succeed in school. So it's a success plan, basically. Ooh, I like that. I hadn't thought about that. That is a huge clarification. I mean, especially for any of the podcast listeners that are residents and early career physicians. I mean, honestly, this took me forever to understand. So there's so there's a sort of medical piece and school piece that sometimes there's a disconnect. And I'm really glad that you had such a good experience with the school piece. Tell me from your experience, what is it that primary care providers do and, you know, in particular pediatricians, that is most helpful and what is not helpful? So, you know, my children are just, they're open books and they talk to me all the time. Well, it's a constant conversation. Um, And they share when they know that they're heard, when they know that they're being discounted. My youngest didn't have language until he was about five. And therefore he it's taking longer to build his ability to share some things. But he knew back then before language that it didn't feel right, that certain doctors just didn't feel right because they didn't have the time for him. Um, or he could feel it from me maybe as well if I felt like we, already, we didn't get any answers on a specific day. Um, and then when you find one, you want to make sure that they're going to be around and that you're always going to have access to them. (laughs) There's a fear of, you know, when we had to leave your practice and the boys were, we kept pediatrician in our life until 21. And you said, you have to leave now. (laughs) And that was scary too. And it used to be, it used to be 18. We used to say, we used to send a birthday card when kids turned 18, like happy birthday. (laughs) Bye-bye. 
Yeah. (laughs) I I personally love working with um, that age group, especially young adults. I mean, for me, that's really fun. So that's funny you would say that. Oh, yeah. But um, finding the adult doctor as well. And then I feel like, you know, us parents, we start talking and everybody then wants to go to that one pediatrician and they all want to go to that one dentist and that one adult doctor. Yeah. And there's capacity. (laughs) We need to be able to have lots of people that can uh, through personality, right? Because it's a lifelong commitment, kind of, if a person wants it to be like that. Um, And for me, for the boys, that's what they're used to is having that one person they always go to that knows the whole story. Sure. Um, Never forgotten our story throughout seeing us. So it wasn't like we were starting brand new every time we talked to you. Right. We would come in and pick up from where we had left off. Now, the last time I talked to you, X, Y, and Z was happening. How's that going? And what are we here for today? It was a continual conversation. And that made it feel like you cared about the whole person, which came as a huge package. (laughs) Well, and I'm wondering because, you know, and I think we all have different levels of expertise. I mean, some people may feel like I'm not the best person to help you with, you know, with this. I mean, there's certainly things that are just not my forte for sure. That's why I was delighted to not have to do inpatient peds anymore because I I just wasn't that, I I just didn't feel like my game was on. Um, Do you feel like it's okay for somebody to say, I'm not sure I'm the best person to help you with this, but this person can or to say, because sometimes, you know, honestly, we do get, you know, you, you know me, I get behind, you know, to be able to say, I'm not sure I can address that today. What, what can I do for you today? Is that helpful? Always. I always say that honesty is the only way I can function. And that's what I expect of everyone. The first pediatrician was honest. And he said, this is not I can't say either way, but I can have you fill out these documents and I can send you to someone who is. And he did. Boy, it's just a breath of fresh air just to have an honest answer sometimes, even though it might not be the answer we're looking for, but absolutely. And I I take that honesty to my conversations with my boys as well. We say things the way they are and we don't sugarcoat things in front of them with a doctor. It is what it is. And we have challenges to overcome and we're going to overcome them. I think that's something I really appreciated about you is that, you know, your kids, um, particularly your youngest, had some some challenges, some things that were hard, certainly more on the educational piece than I think your oldest had more struggles with more the emotional stuff. Absolutely. And I think the way that you were, you're, you're kind of a matter of fact person, like, we're just going to deal with this. I mean, you know, yeah. this is just how it is. And you, you didn't try to overprotect your kids. And I think now that they're adults and have jobs and drive and, you know, and live in their own apartment right next door, um, that (laughs) because you have given them so much independence and maybe the message was like, you can do whatever you want to do kind of thing. That, that I think probably was a huge leg up for them. Well, I think you and I take teamed a lot with making them their own voice. Um, There were oftentimes I wanted to answer their questions. And that was a huge thing that you taught me was thanks. And then you would turn back to them and wait for their answer. Um, And that showed me as a parent, 
And that's a huge thing. If a doctor could do that, that shows that patient, even though that mother may have just said the exact same thing, that patient was allowed to have their own voice. So um, I, I continue to build off of that, learning those lessons from you, um, that they have to have their own voice. When they come and say, I am frustrated with X, Y, Z. Great. What are you going to do about it? And they, well, I just wanted to punch the person, whatever it might be, run away. That's one choice. And I always give them the five. There's one bad choice. Now you've got four more fingers. Find four more things you could have done, but you didn't choose to do. So the next time you're in that situation, you'll have one of those to think about and do that instead. And it's their choice in how they deal with life and life's challenges. And I say that um, a lot of people want to know, how did I get, what's the secret to getting my kids to drive, hold down full-time jobs? Um, they also qualified for the mortgage that bought this house. We own it together, which wow. is quite a piece of pride. That's amazing. Um, but people want to know what's, what's the secret bullet, you know? And I think the secret bullet is, what do you want? And what are you going to do to get it? Um, my youngest son, if someone had asked me, in fact, my um, father-in-law used to say, what do you think? Do you think he'll ever, and fill in the blank, do you think he'll ever drive? Do you think he'll ever hold down a do job? Do you think he'll ever have a, a girlfriend, wife? And um, I always said, I, I have no clue. I only know him as a five-year-old, but he's going to be the best five-year-old. He can be the way he wants it to be. So whenever he made his choice of what he wanted, we were going to find a way to get him there. He decided he wanted to drive. And I knew he wasn't going through the same driver's ed my oldest went through. So we found a lady who does. And that they exist. People are out there trying to help adults with autism. Yeah. And she wasn't there to tell him no. She was there to say, this is your dream. I'm going to teach you, but you still have to do your part. Wow. That's power. You sound like a teacher. I, I love I love the way you say it. I love the five choices. That is brilliant. It's also what we talk about in our field of work is motivational interview, um, interviewing on and kind of um you let somebody figure out how to get from A to B. Like on the one hand, I see that you really want to smoke cigarettes because you enjoy it, you feel like you fit in. And on the other hand, you want to be um, a cross-country runner. Um, how do you think that might be a problem? Is that going to get in the way? So what you said about, you know, what you want and, and of course, kids can't always get everything they want. I um, mean, none of us can, but you can at least strive, right? Yeah. That is brilliant. I, that's a brilliant, I mean, for everybody on, on anything we do, <laughs> I have to think about the, what I want <laughs> now to get it. <laughs> sure. Sure. We all do. Right. Um, we have to, when you're loving someone that's on the autism spectrum, you want them to get as far as they could possibly go and be in independent, but you do want to enable them. You do want to pick up the pieces um, and we have to stop ourselves. We do have to let them fall down, let them figure things out. They're watching and taking in information all the time, probably even more so than a typical child would. And they just have to have that desire. And then they have to believe in themselves. If we never believe in them, they're never going to believe in themselves. Powerful. I think, you know, that's certainly about rescuing our kids. I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of that for sure. And 
Um, I, my kids would say it too. I mean, the best thing ever happened to them was when they moved out of state, you know, they were too far, (laughs) too far to help. Um, I, let me ask you something. I don't know. It's anything we ever talked about. Was there any ever any sorrow or grief over the diagnosis? And did anybody ever ask you, is that something we should ask about? Hmm. Well, you know, things have changed a lot since my kids were diagnosed. Yes, there were absolutely, um, I didn't want to deal with it at all. I was angry at everyone who dared to say it until I got through U of M. And then I went into the next phase. One of the most amazing things that were was ever said to me, cry. I'd had a hard trip driving up to my parents' house and my son had cried all the way up there because he hates the car ride. My father took him out of my arms and he said, stop it. I don't want to hear the A word again. This is my grandson. I'm going to love him like a grandson. I'm going to spank him like a grandson and he'll follow me around like a grandson. And then he walked out with him. And I sat there in disbelief and went, he's right. I I have to stop this, my poor baby mentality. And he's got to get along in this world. However, he wants to get along in this world. He's got to get along in this world. And I always come back to that. My father does not remember ever saying it. You've told me that story many times when we've talked. And I'm wondering if the language that we could use maybe as we're talking about, because I'll be honest, you know, if I have a kid, I mean, there's some kiddos that are so significantly affected that everybody knows something's seriously wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's those kids that... You know, I see and I'm like, huh, I'm this just feels like maybe a kiddo on the spectrum. So bringing that up, one is hard. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes I'll just say, I'm not really sure. Have you ever wondered, Um, you know, and let's why don't we do some more testing? No harm in testing. I mean, it, it might actually open some doors, but I don't know that I've really ever asked how is this for you is is, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm wondering because for other people having a diagnosis of autism for their child might be painful or sad or scary. Is it like that for you? Would that be a way Mm -hmm. to ask? Absolutely. Um, And now our medical offices are asking more of those social, emotional, are you going through certain periods in your life? And you have more opportunities now than we did back then to be able to discuss some of those challenges, those scary moments in life. I've always looked at these things. No, not always in my enlightened years, maybe. Um, It's a challenge. The child has a challenge. It's not a deficit. You could call it a disability, whatever you want. It's a difference. Sure. And I don't get offended when people say there's something wrong with him. Okay. He has a challenge. I have challenges too. I'm overweight. It's hard for me to get up with these knees now because I've been overweight for so long. It's a challenge. I can do something about my challenge. He can do things about what he wants to address with his own challenge. Did I answer what you were? No, you, you, you're spot on. Well, kind of on that, you know, this trajectory of kids. And I think there's so much with, you know, we start out with, is there something going on? So there's the challenge of the diagnosis. What do they need? So getting the school Uh, supports and whatever. And I think there's so much focus on getting kids to high school graduation. Mm -hmm. And then they launch and we sort of forgot that we need to think about that because, you know, again, as a pediatrician, I don't always know like what's out there for kids. I mean, you mentioned like finding a a driver's trainer 
that knows something about working with kids that have learning differences. So what and when do you start having the conversation about beyond high school? Sure. You know, Kayrisa put together a wonderful um, website that has when your child is in special education, grades one through three, these are the things you should focus on. Grades four and five, middle school years, high school years. And that's been a, a fantastic resource I send people to. Um, but and in for anybody who's listening, Kayrisa is our intermediate school district for Kalamazoo. Do you think that that is something that's available nationally? I mean, is that a, a school thing that is a, a Not resource? all are created equal. Well, what we'll do is maybe you can send me the link and I'll include it in our show notes so people can look at that. So um, I interrupted. Go ahead. Well, um, when a student with an IEP gets to age 16 by law in the state of Michigan, they have to fill out what's called a student transition inventory. You can do it earlier. It can start in eighth grade. Now, when I was a middle school teacher, we did start them in eighth grade and it seems silly. What do you want to do when you grow up? Where do you want to live? What do you want to do in your spare time? Do you want to go to college, not go to college? And then it goes through all of these life skills that we should be teaching kids. Do you know how to do the laundry, cook things, right? It goes on and on and on. This one specifically is a, a green one that I got from my middle school years. And it's a way to start that conversation with parents to say, are they ready And if you start that in eighth grade, as opposed to 16 years old, when they legally have to, it starts the parents thinking about those skills, about those enabling things that they probably do. Oh, yeah, I've never cooked with my son. Or, oh, yeah, I probably could teach them to do laundry. Could they ever do such and such? You never know until you really give them some time to learn skills. Um, And they're kind of fun, too, because they change over time. You know, kids go, I'm going to go to Hollywood. I'm going to be an actor. Yes, you are. And we're going to gear this all towards that, right? Or I'm going to be a professional football player. Never made the team before, but you're going to be a professional football player. Not a problem, right? We want to um, honor what they want and it will evolve and change, but it's starting a conversation. So those are two different resources. Now, if you don't have an IEP, you could still look up transition inventory and find one that gives you basic ideas of skills, but look around your house too. You can see every skill that you do is something that someone that has special needs needs to. This feels like something that a, you know, pediatrician or your primary care provider could help with. Um, I don't, you know, I, I, I wish I had thought of that. And I, I think it talks a little bit about some of the disconnects that we have, and you and I had talked about this, this disconnect between families and how these silos, healthcare, education and schools, and then community resources, how they don't always interconnect. And right. thoughts on that? Oh, I have lots of thoughts on that. Um, it's something that um, I feel like we need to make some bridges between school and the health community and the resources that are in the community because they, they are all making an attempt to support these kids, these young adults. And if we could work together with all of the efforts that each one of them individually wants to put together, um, you take a, a program that's available through Western, 
that's a fantastic program, but they don't understand educationally what the student is getting. You could take a doctor who says, I want that school to test them for autism. To what end? We tested them for autism. They qualify as having the spectrum. What does that doctor need? So if we could all understand each other better, we could do so much more. You know, that, that sounds like a project. <laughs> I, feel, project. I feel like that we've, I, you know, I started a group that was with those folks at the table, not specifically around autism, but, and honestly, that's where I learned about the whole thing about IEPs and what that meant was from a special education teacher who I had pulled into this group. And I had gone to a conference and met with a psychiatrist and said, I am so frustrated because I can't access the child psychiatrist. And he said, it was brilliant. Go back to your community and invite everybody you know that you want to be at the table. And he said things like the mayor, the superintendent of schools, um, you know, therapists, and get them in all, all in a room and start talking. And I did that. And I don't know that it necessarily moved mountains, but it sure as heck helped me know about resources. I, I wish that that was a, a format. What I didn't have, and I should have, was a parent. That, ah. that would have I'm been- Like, I missed this thing. I, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> we have a project now, Mary. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I, I wish that there was, um, and there may be other communities and maybe folks that are listening to the podcast that know about it can email me, you know, that how do we do that? How do you formalize it? Because it's going to vary so much from community to community about, you know, what you have in a, a rural community versus a big urban center where there's a, you know, a University of Michigan. Sure. It's going to be very different. So have you worked with networks of parents? I know we have some, and is that helpful to parents? Um, absolutely. Everybody finds a different network or they should be I believe, looking for the one that fits them the best. Um, my network of parents has primarily been um, Special Olympics. They have been fantastic. And um, because there's so much available in Kalamazoo County for Special Olympics, you're able to find different groups of parents. And so um, I've watched some of the parents that had older athletes. You know, ours isn't just, um, there's another thing with Special Olympics. They have a educationally based system in some counties, in some counties are a community-based system and people don't know how to get involved if they have a school-based educational or um, special Olympics. So we have a community-based one. It's huge because we have a lot of resources available and we take every athlete that wants to be, whether they're in our county or not. But um, I've watched older athletes watch their parents pass away. And I've watched parents that chose to have them go to a group home before that happened so that they could build a life first. And I've seen ones that didn't. And then that athlete has to, in their own way, deal with their parents' death and the fact that they're losing their home, their primary caregiver, and they're having to move either into a group home or in with a sibling. And everything they've ever known has been ripped away from them. And sometimes they don't even get to stay in our community and stay with Special Olympics. So watching some of those things happen or being able to talk to them and find out why they made certain choices. Now, parents want to talk about their kids that, you know, when you meet up with other parents of special needs, kids and adults, we want to collaborate and find out what works and what doesn't work. 
And sometimes you go to, you know, going to a meeting once doesn't mean I went to a parent meeting once and I was scared afterwards based on their topic and never returned because of it. But my child was two and a half at the time. Wasn't the right time. No. (laughs) Well, they were talking about middle school issues, Hmm. things I'm very comfortable talking about now, but things that at two and a half, I, when my child was two and a half, I didn't want to even fathom would be in his life ever. Um, So, so finding like-minded people. And I've sometimes connected parents between each other. I I had some families that have foster care children and, or have adopted kids out of foster care. And that has its own unique challenges and have connected them. And I don't know where it went after that. I just said, Hey, I've got these wonderful parents that have been through a lot of stuff. What you're going through, would I, could I connect you? And you and I did that. Yes. And we tried to formalize it and I don't know how well that went, but I gave out your name and number to a lot of people. Now, I don't know if they called, but I think a few did. Um, a few did, yeah. You know, yeah. just when and, we had it flipped the other way where I was calling, those things happened a lot more because I was in control of it. The asking for help is a hard thing for mm-hmm. a parent. We're so busy, just bogged down with our day that making that phone call is a lot. Right. You know, so we're trying to make phone calls to find resources and to find groups and to find athletic things these kids can do, all kinds of things. And just to call a parent to what it feels like is whine, right? You want to call someone and say, I just can't believe he can't pick up his pants and he can't whatever. And it's really not whining. It's it's a listening ear that understands where you're coming from and sure. to support you where you're at. But um I probably wouldn't have made the call either. Well, and I'm wondering, I mean, that's just something else, I guess, to think about what pediatric offices could do is somehow facilitate, Mm -hmm. you know, now we have a social worker as a social worker, somebody that could help make that. Because I think you're right. Sometimes it's hard to reach out for whatever, you know, there may be one, I don't want this to be a problem. And why would I want to talk to somebody else? Or I it's too personal. They wouldn't understand. And it's a lot to cold call somebody. And and you're right. Maybe reaching out ahead of time, just saying, Hey, um, you know, Dr. Gugino thought maybe I might be able to give you some information that would help you. I just found like, I learned so much from you when we sort of started this project. Um, you know, you brought in this folder of all these things and I had no clue that that was available. And I learned some things from you. So there are a lot of things that um, just because you have to, you have to fight and scrap to figure out, you know, one thing was my kids were getting close to turning 18 and I needed to know, do they have to sign up for the draft? I mean, really, do they have to sign up for the draft? And they do. Never thought of that. Yeah. Well, that brings me to guardianship because Mm -hmm. that was a whole thing. I mean, I've certainly been asked to, you know, go to court and provide information about why a child requires guardianship. And I just thought that was like, it was an either or yes, you do or no, you don't. And I've come to learn not well, but share what you know about guardianship and what's in between. And how can, how do we help? What do we need to know? Well, I am not the expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I did go to see Um, a speaker, and I'll have to get you his name. Um, And he really did lay out guardianship is saying that this 
child is incompetent. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. Big gulp. I am not raising my child to be incompetent. I'm raising the most competent child he can possibly be at this point in his life, right? And therefore, what were my other options? If I don't want to say in a court of law that he is incompetent. Now he might be, might be completely, but he still has thoughts. He still has um, plans for his life. He still has needs and wants. And as a parent, you're always going to see those things. But the best laid plans don't always work out. Over half of the people that get guardianship for their special needs child who grows into a special needs adult, over half of those no longer know their guardian. Because when you get guardianship for your child, you are court appointed, which means the court truly is the person who's going to let you know if you're still the guardian of their your child. And if you're not competent yourself, they can take that guardianship away and give it to anybody else they see fit. So, so let me give you an example. Let's say I have a kiddo who has some uh, intellectual disability mm-hmm. so, and needs a lot of help, maybe physically, but has you know, some really significant challenges may need help with medication, may need help. They don't know how to manage money. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? I should have them in guardianship or is there something else? There's partial guardianships where you would go to court and say, over these specific issues, I need guardianship for my child. And it could be medical. It could be monetarily to meet those needs. But that same adult child with significant disabilities still should be able to say, I don't want to eat that food and not be forced to. They should be able to say, I don't like this caretaker. I want to fire that person. They should not be the ones here wiping me and cleaning me. I don't like them. They should have a voice in certain things. And partial guardianship would allow them more power is what you're saying. Correct. Yeah. So it might be something helpful and I can do a little research and maybe find some links working with an attorney who knows Mm -hmm. something about guardianship and those levels, because I I didn't real now, a lot of kids, it seems like get um, there's a temporary guardianship that has to be reviewed after a year. Mm -hmm. So I know some of the cases that I have, been involved in that's what happened but yeah sometimes it's been a little bit confusing to me about how a guardian got chosen Mm -hmm. and you know where I knew that the kiddo needed some help for sure to function completely like okay go you're on your own wasn't going to work but I don't know that I understood the nuances of that sure it's kind of the same thing when you get a divorce and the parents go to the court, and they make up their agreement on their divorce, the court is telling them, yes, we'll take this agreement. Or the court could say, no, we don't take this agreement. We're going to tell you that you get the child this amount of time. They get to make up their mind. The court is in control. So anything that goes to the court, you are no, you're handing over your control. So to say that I want my nephew to then oversee this guardianship, by the time it comes to be, my nephew might not be interested in taking over that guardianship. 
and just take a buy on it when he gets to the court. The court then has people that they give that guardianship to, and those are complete strangers. And some of them are perfectly lovely. Some of them have never met the people, never care to meet the people. They just run with whatever it is they expect. And some people think that guardianship gives them a certain amount of security and safety, that they can keep their child safe from some of the boogeymen that live out in the real world. It's not going to keep your child from being taken advantage of, unfortunately. It is a document you can say they legally can't get married without my permission, if that's the way you want to go with it. But it doesn't keep them safe, completely safe. So what did, did you make any choices about how you would assist your kids with some of these big decisions? So we talked very openly about guardianship. People, (laughs) there's a lot of people, they have opinions about guardianship. And a lot of people would throw that at me and say, you need to get guardianship over them. And I'd say, no, I'm really more of a person-centered program. My children will have a voice in how their adult lives run. We'll discuss things. We will... um, lay out their options, but it's person-centered. Person-centered, though I am an advocate for it, isn't the right answer for everybody. Some people do need some partial guardianship, medical choices being one. If someone never wants to ever get a shot, they're not going to agree to get a surgery that they might need, right? Person-centered planning is also one where there's some downfalls to it. If you truly do the person-centered planning, It could be where that child says, I feel like moving to New York City because that's where I want to be. The person-centered planning is going to do everything they can to help him get there and head him off to New York City. Well, that doesn't mean it's in the best interest of that child. And there are bumps that still come with it. Sounds like parenting. (laughs) (laughs) For the rest of your life, yes. Yeah, well, I (laughs) remember when one of my kids decided to one change careers and move across country and that I could see that and then decided to quit a job and move to another place where she had an apartment but no job and figured out how to get a job wasn't a great job but it allowed her to do what she did and you know it was comfortable and then again decided I don't want to do this job I'm going to work for myself and I had to bite my tongue because what I wanted to say is, are you out of your mind? How could you do that? And I had a whole nother thought. And, you know, two years later, uh, this kid has a business and it's amazing. I mean, Mm -hmm. he has a financial planner and she has an accountant and an agent and who knew, right? Right. So thank God she didn't listen. I I didn't say it, but thank God she didn't listen to me. And in fact, she said, you know, I, I thought maybe this wasn't going to work. And I thought to myself, God, I'm glad I didn't say that because <laughs> it was there, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure we know exactly what our kids need and we still have disagreements. Um, sure. Well, that's really helpful. And like I said, I'm going to do a little research so I can, I, I'm sure that there is information out there. And I, this sounds like a whole nother topic I should I should get a, an attorney on. Um, mm-hmm. I have an ethicist that I'm I'm hoping to bring on. So mm. he might be somebody to talk with. There was one other thing, and maybe we touched on it. I think we already touched on it. I was thinking about those three legs of the stool, healthcare, schools, and education, and community resources. I guess the other thing, just in kind of wrapping up, is 
what would your boys say if they were on here? If I was interviewing them, what would they say that is the most important thing to them when they go to the doctor's office? They love the personal relationship. They love being honored as being their own person and having their own viewpoints. And they felt like they weren't an autistic person, but they were a person and just appreciated for all that they were. I guess we all want that, right? I I remember asking a kiddo one time who had, um, it was the same kind of question, but to somebody who had a very significant mental health disorder. And I said, what do you want when you go to the doctor's office? And he said, I just want them to look at me when they're talking to me. And he was talking about checking in and I was like, oh my God, the bar is low. It's like, we could at least do that. Right. Yeah. Nobody, nobody wants to be a number. I remember walking in with your oldest son and he and I got to know each other really well. And he'd say, Hey, Gugino. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're just G now. You're yeah. going to do that interview with G today. Yes. <laughs> I love it. But Thank you know, you I mean, it was, laugh. It was fun to see them graduate and knowing that, you know, you told me, and I love this, it kind of fits your idea of parenting. You told me your dream was to sell your house and buy a duplex where your boys were next door and you have done that. Yes, we got there. I didn't know at the time that there would still be a door that connects our duplexes (laughs) and I should have thought this through because that door should be a revolving door for as much as they come in and go, Hey, I'm like, wait a minute. I'm trying very desperately not to keep walking into your side. (laughs) Give me my space. Yeah. Yeah, I've never been on my own. So it's an interesting one and they are loving it. They're enjoying, you know, running their own bills without me interfering and how are they doing groceries? And of course one cooks for the other and And then gets tired of cooking. He's like, boy, this cooking thing, I'm really tired of it. (laughs) Do they ever do they ever talk about romantic relationships or you know, marriage or having kids, anything like that? My youngest wants to have a relationship so desperately. And he wants to have just one child. He loves babies, just loves children, and could just spend all of his time working with children. Um, my oldest would like to have of a relationship. He's had some that have been pretty rocky in the past. And so he wants it to happen naturally. Feels like he's grown from some of those places he was at before. But my youngest is just desperate to to find a girl. Um, but with that, I also feel like um, sometimes people pigeonhole those with special needs into needing to have as adults only places that have programs for special needs and that they should only be looking for a significant other that also has a special need. And I've never been one to pigeonhole them in that specifically. So they have found their own adult groups to go out and do things with that are of their interests, but are not made up of special needs adults whether it's the Lego group that puts together Legos for one of the big Lego displays or volunteering in um, the, the cats and dogs, the shelters, they just go out and do things to meet people that have the same interests that they do. I love that you have created, um, it's like no 
there are no limitations. There are no rules that bind you to, you have to do this, you should do that, um, or you can't, you can't have, you know, how could you have a relationship with someone who doesn't have autism? Right. (laughs) Or who, you know, I don't know. I mean, that part, we just don't get into so much in pediatrics and, and that's important. I have actually a child psychiatrist, Dr. Alavi, who has done a couple podcasts with me. And one of the ones she wants to do is about sexuality and autism Mm -hmm. and, you know, talk about hard things like masturbation and which is a topic that we don't always talk about anyway with kids. I do. (laughs) Of course you do. (laughs) Of course you do. My poor students at at school and my, my boys, it is what it is. And that's just talk about it. I love that. I love that. So if I do that interview with her, I'm going to have you on it too, because we need to, I I think that bringing parents into this, and I do think more and more in pediatrics, I know the American Academy of Pediatrics really encourages, you know, having families at the table because, you know, kids don't exist in a vacuum. They exist in families. And Mm -hmm. maybe it's important to have parents at the table when we're making plans about what they need. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure I have brilliant ideas about what you need, but maybe the best person to ask about what you need is you. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, well, Mary, it has been a delight. I love chatting with you and catching up and I, I miss that, you know, your boys are too old for me to see now and, and, and I've stepped away anyway. So, you know, time, time passes, but I'm so glad that they are thriving and that, you know, there's lots of new adventures and, you know, maybe different things for you now that your boys are more independent, like you'll have to have your own life. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. Well, I, they would love to see you anytime. It's always, yeah. always a joy. And, um, you know, you are one of the biggest blessings of our life. Oh, I well, appreciate you. Well, ditto. I mean, that's what makes, um, doing pediatrics so much. I mean, for me to see a kid that I've known since they were, you know, young and to watch them graduate and go to graduations, um, you know, it's just, it's just the best. I mean, that longitudinal relationship is really powerful and it's fun. I mean, because then I get to, you know, I'm not walking into someone I don't know. I'm walking in and saying, Hey, how was your trip? Or how's your dad? You know, I think I met your parents at something Oh yeah. like, how's your mom and dad doing? And you know, what's that new job like or whatever. And so, you know, it's all about, this is all about relationships. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think if everything that we did, we kept that in mind that, you know, we're just all connected as humans and we all have challenges and, and strengths and that we bring to the table. So um, the blessing goes both ways. You've been a blessing to me. And when COVID passes, I would love to spend some time and catch up with your, with your boys. So, well, thanks again, Mary, and um, we will talk soon. All right. Thank you. I want to thank Mary for her generosity of time and just for being vulnerable and talking about her own experiences. 
Um, sometimes it's hard. And I know that she felt a little anxious about doing this, but I told her just speak from your heart because your advice is like nothing else that anyone else can provide. I mean, it is so genuine and we need to listen to parents when we're making decisions or plans about children because they may have the most information, but also we need to listen to the kids. We need to be asking them, especially as they get older, um, what they want. So here's some takeaways. Uh, Number one, when kids are first diagnosed or recognized as perhaps having a challenge, parents may be ready to hear about that, particularly if there are some significant delays or some behaviors. Like she mentioned, one of her kids um, had language delays, but cried a lot and just didn't seem to interact the same as she thought her older child had. And she was ready for the evaluation and could really hear that perhaps there might be some value in further assessment and opportunities for intervention. However, parents may not be ready and they may be caught off guard. And this may be very, very difficult information to hear. Number two, the emotions are a mixed bag. There may be sorrow and grief. There may may be denial. There may be anger. People often talk about the A word and hating that. There may be feelings of of pity and worry like, oh, my poor child. And then fierce determination to help the child succeed at whatever they want to be. And I think Mary really speaks to that so powerfully that my children can do what they want to do. And my job is to help them get to that. Number three, know the difference between medical and educational diagnoses of autism and what resources are available to them. If you go back to a previous episode with Ricky Saunders, she also talks about this difference in educational and medical diagnoses. Mary spoke, I thought, very eloquently about IEPs being the most restrictive intervention, and 504 is really opening up accommodations that may be just right and just what a child needs. So I think, think about that. And this is an opportunity for you to partner with schools because this is their language. And uh, I think we could really, um, could really benefit from that kind of conversation. Number four, start thinking about the path to adulthood early. The schools are often doing this, especially with kids with special needs and those that have IEPs. The ISDs or the intermediate school districts may provide transition plans and transition inventories that begin early to help with this trajectory into adulthood. Um, It's never too early to really start thinking about that. I know there have been too many times when it was, you know, a kid 16, 17, and then thinking about what's adulthood going to look like. And oftentimes the resources for young adults is more limited. So again, this is an opportunity for us to partner with others in the community. Number five, uh, and this speaks to the last point, is, you know, parents and families need bridges between the healthcare sector and then community sector and the educational sector. We each have our own role to play, but we need to be interconnected in order for families to benefit. It's important that we know what the resources are. And I think a powerful way that you can approach that is call a meeting. I mean, maybe it's a Zoom meeting, right? But, you know, call a meeting, 
get together with an educator, somebody from your community mental health, maybe a therapist you know, and just sit down and start talking about how are we going to do this differently? I can guarantee you that if you initiate that, people will come. Um, people want to partner with physicians and healthcare providers. It, it's very powerful. So, you know, again, use your voice here. Number six, Mary says, when my child wants to do something that I have questions about whether or not it's a good idea or not, I say there are five options. One is a bad option, and then there are four others. Which one are you going to choose? And what's that going to look like? Number seven, about guardianship. So this is an area where I think we could all use a little bit more information. So guardianship may be a complete guardianship where someone is really stripped of their rights. It may be temporary and have to be revisited, um, like say annually. And then it might be partial where there's some guidelines around what the guardianship covers and what it doesn't. It's really important that we think about what kids and young adults as they are um, can do and how much decision-making they should be allowed. I mean, we really should look at what's the most that they can impact because even kids that have some significant intellectual disabilities can talk about what they want and we need to listen to that. I'm including in the show notes some links to information on guardianship and some on transition. I forgot to mention that earlier. Number eight, what my boys would say about healthcare and what they want from, from us. I am not a number. I am not an autistic person. I am a person. I value knowing my physician, nurse practitioner. I value knowing them for a long time because then they really know me. And I, I think those things apply to everyone, right? I mean, we all want to be seen. We don't want to be a label. You know, I'm not a someone that's bipolar. I'm a person with a challenge. And so I think keep that in mind. And number eight, the secret bullet, asking kids, what do you want and how can you get it? So let the child take the lead. There should be no cages. If you want to play for the NFL, well, what do you need to do to get there? If you want to drive a car, what do you need to know and what do you need to practice? I think that is really great advice for all of us. I mean, we all have things that we want to do, but it doesn't just happen like magic. I mean, we have to plan, we have to work at it, and so do kids, but, you know, sky's the limit. So keep that in mind. Mary just, again, has such an amazing voice, and her boys are really lovely young men, and I'm hoping that they may be interested in doing a podcast down the road. So nothing better than hearing from patients about what they need and want. So look forward to that. Thanks again for your time. I know you guys are super busy and I hope that you're all safe and that the pandemic end is in uh, in our sight somewhere. So hope you're able to get your vaccines and that soon our families and kids can get vaccinated too. So there is always hope. Take good care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.